Welcome back to Poem Peeps. Thanks for tuning in this week. We are really excited to have a great Top Consults episode for you. Christina, very excited for this episode. How are you doing? Hey, Burb, doing well. And I am excited about this as well. You know, dealt with this um, just a few days ago on service. So really excited to hear a little bit more from our experts today on our topic and excited for a new academic year. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is the time of year where a million questions come up on all the common consults that pulmonary fellows get and that the problem, problems that residents are seeing. So this is a great time to add to our top consult series. And we're going to continue today talking about plural diseases. It's been a while since we picked up on this. So just as a reminder to everyone listening, we talked about a general approach to pleural fusions with Mira John and Eileen Lynch from UW. And then we talked about paranomonic effusions and empyema with DFK and Mihir Parikh. And we are really excited to tackle a third uh, episode in the series and we'll have more to come. Monty, you ready for some more intrapleural fun? Oh, absolutely. As you said, Burf, the two first episodes were extremely helpful for me. So today we're joined by three fantastic experts to help dive into this topic further. And I'm um, excited to introduce first, we have Dr. Dave DiBardino. David is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and is an associate director for clinical research within the section of interventional pulmonology. He's also the program director for the IP fellowship there. I'm so honored to welcome you to the show today, David. Thank you for joining Colm Peeps. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about one of my favorite topics. Next, we have Jamie Besick. Jamie is an assistant professor of medicine and cardiothoracic surgery at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She's also the section chief of interventional pulmonology and the director of bronchoscopy at Tisch Hospital. Jamie, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It's my first podcast, so I'm very excited. Oh, welcome. I might be a generation and the rest of you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're glad to bring you into this experience. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so I'm uh, glad to have you, JB. And joining our guest today, last but not least, we would like to welcome back to the show, Dr. Van Holden. Van is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, where she's also the pulmonary and critical care fellowship program director there. You may remember she was last on the show for a fellow's case files where we discussed a fascinating case of PAP, and we jumped on the opportunity to have you back, Van. So thanks so much for um, coming back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited for today's talk. Great. Yeah. So before we get started, our standard disclaimer, just as a reminder, this is not for specific medical advice. The views we express may not reflect the opinions or policies of our, of our respective employers. And any case that we're talking about is HIPAA compliant with details that may have been changed to protect the privacy of all of our patients. So let's dive in. We've had a general approach to plural fusions in the past, as we talked about. So if you want to hear about how to assess a basic plural fusion or approach a new patient with one, I suggest you go back and listen to that episode. Uh, and today we have a case of a patient who's coming in with an effusion. Then it looks like we have our first consult. So this page reads, this is a 72-year-old man who's a smoker with a new effusion, concern for malignancy, tap, question mark. And in my experience, this is actually a pretty common consult page that you might get if you are a new fellow holding the consult pager. And even though there's not a ton of information there, I think we can start and talk about that. We never want to endorse premature closure or diagnostic bias here on Poem Peeps, and we should always get more info and talk to the patients ourselves. But it is helpful to have a framework of thinking when you see a new consult page coming in. 
So before we learn any more, let's just talk about who can present with a malignant pleural effusion, what we'll be discussing today, to understand what this team may be worried about. So Van, could you tell us broadly what type of malignancies commonly present with effusions? Sure, I would be happy to. So lung cancer is the most common cause of malignant pleural effusion in men. And in women, the most common cause is breast cancer. Together, lung and breast cancers account for more than half of all malignant pleural effusions. Other causes that are less common are lymphoma or cancers of the GU or GI tract. And finally, mesothelioma is another cause, and that's cancer of the pleura itself, and it can lead to pleural fusion. Uh, one thing I just want to mention is that it's important to keep in mind that any finding of malignant pleural fusion indicates a very late presentation of cancer. So that means that the cancer is already advanced or metastasized, and so the survival is poor, anywhere from 3 to 12 months, depending on the patient and the tumor. Thanks so much, Finn. I think that's a really um, helpful tip to remember, as you just said, that a pleural, a malignant pleural effusion is usually a late sign. So definitely thank you for pointing that out. And hopefully listeners can remember that from today's talk. And we're going to definitely go in um, and examine the patient and talk to the patient. But so Dave, before we do, are there medical history features that we should be thinking about to raise concern about a malignant pleural effusion? Yeah, I think that as Van said, you're going to hone in on someone's risk factors for lung cancer, really, first and foremost. So smoking history, family history, lung cancer, less common exposures like asbestos, radon. So you want to go through that pretty carefully. It pays off to, at the same time, think about age-appropriate cancer screening in women for breast cancer. And then the bread and butter. Do they have recent infectious symptoms? Do they have liver, kidney, or heart disease that puts them at risk for fluid overload? Because as we're probably going to get into later, it isn't that simple to confirm someone's pleural effusion is malignant. And you're going to need all the clues you can come up with from the history, honestly. Thanks, Davia. And that's a really great point as well. Already two, two learning pearls off the top of the hour that we've had so far. Definitely remember that. And I think before we go a little bit further and talk and examine the patient, one thing that I think people want to clarify, um, a definitional type of question, we're focusing on malignant effusions today, but there's also this can be a phenomenon of paramalignant effusions that sometimes come up for patients with underlying malignancy. And Jamie, I'm wondering if you could tell us the difference between a malignant and paramalignant effusion. Yeah, so malignant effusions are where the actual malignant or cancer cells have invaded the pleural membrane. So if you're going to do a thoracentesis, you'll see cells that are malignant, abnormal cells. Or if you have a negative pleural effusion, when you do a pleuroscopy, a medical pleuroscopy or surgical, you're going to see cancer on the strips of parietal pleura that you're taking. A paramalignant effusion, which I think it varies to the degree that people really use that term. It may be cultural as to where you're practicing. It's not something that we cite as often, but it is really important to know, especially when you're dialoguing about pleural effusions. And that's going to be more of an indirect effect on the pleural space. So there is cancer and it is causing maybe bronchial obstruction or lymph node infiltration and swelling 
or there's some compression of vasculature, for example, all of those things can cause pleural effusions. But if you were to go into the pleural space, you wouldn't necessarily see cancer on the pleura. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, it's a great reminder. We have people listening for all over and sometimes I hear something and I'm like, I actually have no idea what that is. And it just turns out <laughs> I call it something different, which is, you know, yeah, exactly. all right. So now we have our place in the right framework. We've thought about who these patients could be, the type of definitions we're going to be thinking about. We're not honing in on uh, malignant infusion yet if we're seeing a new consult. So we're going to hear more about our patient. So this is a 72-year-old man. He has a past history of gold B COPD. He has tobacco use history in 55 pack years, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. He presents to the ED with progressive dyspnea fatigue. He's on a llama and LABA for his COPD, but he's not a frequent exacerbator. He can't even remember the last time he got steroids. He's had no increased sputum production or wheezing, but he's been feeling progressively fatigued, lethargic, and dyspneic. Over the past few weeks, his dyspnea on exertion has been increasing, and he now has it at rest. It's a little bit worse when he lies flat but he's had no weight gain or swelling in his legs. And he's actually lost 10 to 15 pounds in the last three months unintentionally. In the ED, he is newly requiring three to four liters of nasal cannula, and he had decreased breast sounds on the right side and a chest x-ray that showed a large right-sided pleural fusion. He also had a large apical nodule with some speculation seen on that x-ray, both of which were new from prior, and that's why the team was concerned about malignancy. Jamie, in our old episodes, we talked a lot about the value of ultrasound and CT scan for effusions, and we talked about them in empyemas and the type of clues they can give us. I'm curious, are there things that you can look for if you're evaluating a patient who has a new effusion like this that would be clues that it's from a malignant etiology? Absolutely. I think it's so helpful, especially to use ultrasound, because so many of us just have this at at our disposal and are able to very quickly go to the bedside without necessarily waiting for a scan that may take hours or longer to get done, especially if the patient has something new or didn't come through the emergency room where they're able to get an immediate CT scan. So first, just to look at ultrasound, while there are features that can be helpful, of course, the most important thing if you have a pleural effusion is going to be to sample it because that's really always going to be uh, your first step for diagnosis. But features that you can look for, really, I not love for the patient, but love in a teaching sense to see if there are especially nodules present on the diaphragm. Those are some of the easiest ones to see because they contrast with the fluid being dark on the ultrasound and the lesion being a bright color. And you can see that the diaphragm is not the perfect dome anymore on your ultrasound. So that's probably the best thing that you can say, oh my goodness, this is really concerning for malignancy. You can also see when you're ultrasounding lesions on the chest wall or even lesions in the lung. And then another thing you can look for when you're ultrasounding, especially if you're scanning, is to see disruption of the pleural line or even an area of lack of sliding where there actually is a lesion. Doesn't mean there's a pneumothorax there, especially if you see sliding on either side. You may actually be looking at a met to the pleura. If you see loculated fluid, although loculated fluid could be a number of different things, you definitely don't want to necessarily exclude that the patient, in this case, it may seem a bit more obvious, but thickened pleura, loculations, all of those things can also be very indicative of malignancy in the right setting. So important really to consider, of course, not excluding that you still have to think about infection, for example, but that can be really helpful also to determine if there's malignant or it's more likely that there's malignancy there. 
once you get a CT scan, or if you do get a CT scan, I do always try if I know that the patient has an effusion to get a CT after I've drained the effusion, because then I can see more of the parenchyma. But you can also look for an irregular and nodular and thickened pleura. You can use contrast to see if there's some enhancement of the visceral pleura. Any kind, if, you, if you get the CT before you drain the effusion, a massive pleural effusion, as Van was saying initially, it's the most common cause. Cancer is the most common etiology of a massive pleural effusion. And then again, you can also look for loculated fluid on a CT. Sometimes you won't see that on, a, on the ultrasound, just because there's other structures in the way, of course, in the thorax and also just on the body. But on a CT scan, you should be able to see exactly where you need to know, go, especially if the fluid is loculated and you want to drain it in the specific area. Oh, that, those are amazing tips. I love the CT scan afterwards because you just can't see anything. And then the ultrasound, I feel like so many times, especially if it's a huge effusion, I see people just like, you drop the probe on, I can easily safely tap this and then you stop looking, but there's so much more you could garner from it. So that's really helpful to go through. I appreciate it. I'm sorry, just to add, we also try to take really good images these days of what things look like, especially if you at some point in the future have to go back to compare. So many times you're able just to load those pictures into your medical record and that can be really helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's often overlooked now, even with lines and stuff too. I feel like I've been trying to tell people to upload everything just so people can see what you were looking at. Oh, so as you said, we're going to tap this patient, right? Patient with significant smoking history, new unilateral fusion. We've went through this on our prior episode, but this patient warrants some pleural fluid sampling and analysis. So Dave, we talked about in our prior episodes, a few different criteria that you could use for transudative and exudative. We talked about lights. We talked about two test rules and three test rules. And we discussed that it's really important to have an idea of what you're looking for before you order your pleural fluid studies. So for malignant effusion, what pleural fluid studies are you sending? What features do you commonly see? And what is the most common pleural fluid analysis that comes back? Yeah, obviously, if you're sending on an effusion that you don't already know is from a hydrostatic pressure problem, like transudative fluid overload states, then I would be pretty systematic here. I think that if you think a malignant effusion is possible, then you really want to make sure to send cytology, of course, <clears throat> and make sure that even if that's the hardest test to send in terms of hassle and processing and labeling, that you want to send that, and it's a huge priority. The But really, the, to define the chemical characteristics of the effusion as exudative, so total protein and LDH, is really essential. You don't know what it's from, and you may be in this position where you're debating paranumonic versus malignant, which is very common. And then you really would love to see the gram standing culture, the glucose, and the cell count and diff. When I send that on everybody who I think might have a malignant effusion, if you have a trustworthy process to send pH and what's accurate, that's fine. I tend to send glucose instead to not worry about delays in getting the analysis done and how that might affect the pH. But but you want to throw in the infectious labs, really. The, I think the other piece that might be interesting is to think about whether or not triglycerides should be sent routinely. I think that if your pretest probability for malignant effusion is high, it's not essential. But I can tell you, the, one of the first things I wish I sent 
when I have a malignant effusion or a effusion of unknown etiology and I'm not clear on what it's from is a triglyceride level because I'm trying to think about a special kind of effusion, which could be malignant in nature from lymphoma, but which is a chylothorax, even if the fluid or a chylus pleural effusion, even if the effusion itself isn't frankly milky. And it's a well-known thing that the triglyceride level can be elevated. It can be from lymphatic leak without the fluid visually being white or pink. So I think that you don't want to get too picky here and you want to send all that, all that bread and butter on the paranumonic side and on the malignancy side. And, and I think the one thing I pay attention to a lot is the cell count, honestly. So if someone has a lymphocyte predominant exudative pleural effusion, post-cabbage, tuberculosis, and cancer. Those are really the three things. There are other zebras, I'm sure, and things that are very uncommon to cause effusion that can probably be lymphocyte predominant, but it really helps you with malignant effusion since you're almost always debating paranumonic as the other etiology when you expect more of a neutrophil predominant. So I, I really like the cell count and diff as well, and I always look at that. That's so helpful. And to say, I, I agree with you about pH. I get annoyed sometimes because we send a pH and then it comes back at 6.98, two hours <laughs> later. Yeah. And I'm like, I really don't think this person has an empyema, but what am I supposed to do with this now? So then also having, if I, I'll see it's lymphocytic predominant, that's so helpful. Yeah. And one last comment is that, I guess this is like my theme of the podcast is the whole paranumonic versus malignant issue. And I will say you can't get married to any of this. And there are malignant pleural effusions that are highly inflammatory. So mm -hmm. you'll see sometimes really high LDHs and potentially neutrophil predominant effusions in malignancy, but knowing that's possible, but not likely still could help you when you're scratching your head, waiting on cytology, and you're deciding whether to proceed down an infection route or down a cancer route. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. And that was really helpful just to keep a reminder of what we're going to send. And I think all of us here, when we're working with trainees, we want to make sure that they set themselves up for success when doing the procedure. Then that also involves exactly what labs we're sending and how much fluid that we have. And, and Dave, you alluded to this earlier, earlier in the show where you mentioned that Malignant pleural effusion sometimes can be hard to actually identify that we ha have an underlying malignancy. And Van, I wanted just to ask you and get your input, though. I've read different opinions about how much fluid we should be sending for cytology if a malignant pleural effusion is on your differential. And I'm wondering if you can comment on the sensitivity of cytology for detecting a malignant pleural effusion. And then in, and the second question is, in practice, how much do you usually tell your trainees how much fluid they should send to the lab specifically for cytology? Sure. So the first step, and just to reiterate, Dave's point is to send cytology. So it's important to send it because you may not know whether or not there's an underlying malignancy in an exudative effusion, or if it's a, a paranormonic effusion because of post-obstructive pneumonia from a cancer. And so I think sending cytology in patients is very helpful. Generally in those that have lung or breast cancer, the overall sensitivity is around 65 to 75%. It's not 100%. So a negative test does not rule out cancer. 
So if you're still concerned about an underlying malignant perfusion, you can send a second sample and that will identify about another 25% of patients. But after that, there's really no added benefit. You may be able to identify maybe 5% more patients, but in those situations, obtaining a pleural biopsy would be indicated because the definition again of a malignant pleural fusion is cancer cells in the fluid or cancer cells in the pleura. And it makes a difference in terms of the staging of cancer in these patients. So it's important to really be sure unless they have other sites of metastatic disease in terms of what the staging is for this patient. I'm also just want to mention that if the suspicion is for mesothelioma, the pleural fluid cytology sensitivity is very low, extremely low. And if that's very high here in differential, it'd be important to go directly to pleural biopsy. You actually need to obtain the pleural biopsies for that diagnosis. Um, the other things to think about would be if you're highly suspicious, you've sent one or two pearl fluid cytology and are negative, going to pearl biopsy may also be a way of providing an intervention to manage the malignant pearl fusion, as well as obtaining enough tissue for next generation sequ sequencing. So nowadays, um, cancer therapy is very targeted and immunotherapy is an option for those with advanced disease. And in order to see what patients are a candidate for, they would need enough tissue to send for all the tests that are needed. And then, Christina, to your second question in terms of how much fluid to send. Um, so I typically send at least 60 milliliters, um, and that's based on studies and practice guidelines. Um, but it's also helpful to understand what your hospital does with extra fluid. Um, for example, our lab will process 100 cc's of perfusion because they use few 50 cc centrifuge tubes. Any additional fluid just gets saved. They actually do not spin down the entire bag or entire drainage um, collection device of pearl fluid. So I think sending at least 60 milliliters of cytology is helpful. Thanks, Van. Yeah, that's uh, probably why people always look at me like cross-eyed when I bring down this whole big pleural fluid bag and they're like, we don't need all that <laughs> as it goes, but that's really helpful to go through. You mentioned pleural biopsies, Jamie, you mentioned them before. I just want to dive in very specifically for a second, because I think amongst this crowd, pleural biopsies and pleuroscopy is probably more common, but for a lot of the general palm uh, crowd, I don't think that they're used that much. Van, you mentioned that if you've had multiple negatives, but you have a high suspicion or a suspicion for mesothelioma, those are reasons to go to pleural biopsy. Jamie, any other reasons why we should consider pleural biopsy in our diagnostic algorithm or pleuroscopy as something uh, to think about? I would say pleuroscopy more so than a blind pleural biopsy, especially in cancer where you may not have uniform abnormalities on the parietal pleura. We tend to do that or a recurrent exudative effusion for which we don't have another explanation that would make more sense, like no infection, no recent heart surgery, et cetera. In general, I would say we've been decreasing the number of thoras that we'll do before we move to pleuroscopy. So one to two thorus and TCs before we bite the bullet and do get some pleural tissue. And I would agree with Van. I, we do bring down the entire liter. Uh, they make a cell block immediately. But I would say that the value of actually getting tissue is definitely high. Plural cell blocks, plural fluid cell blocks are not really validated for all of the studies that oncologists now want. 
And that can be a big issue, especially if a patient is going to enter a trial or even if a patient is going to get standard chemotherapy, if we eventually, I do identify cancer, the actual desire to get tissue still exists. So most of the time we will do it after, we'll offer it after one negative thoracentesis, especially if the patient is anxious to find out what's going on. Two is also fine. I would say my practice has changed. I used to do it after three, knowing that even after the third thoracentesis, you will find some malignant effusions if you haven't on the first two. But I think that has changed a little bit over the years, especially as treatment becomes more aggressive and patients also become more anxious to get a diagnosis earlier. I would say it's also important early to get tissue if you're doing, you're violating the pleural space multiple times. You are going to see more loculated fluid, more gelatinous fluid as time goes on. In areas where tuberculosis is more prominent, as it is in New York City where I'm practicing, and although I did not train in a place where TB was very predominant, especially with a lot of immigrant population influx into this area, it has been something that doing a pleural biopsy has been very beneficial for and not necessarily waiting and seeing if on the third thoracentesis we're going to find something like that. So uh, differentiating between that and infection is also um, important between malignancy and infection. I would just put one more thing that the benefit, I would say, of a pleural biopsy is in malignant effusions as well is this stripping of the pleura when you're taking the biopsies, which allows pleuridesis to often occur much more quickly. So it's almost like a mechanical pleuridesis that a surgeon would do. So as we're taking biopsies, if we take them from different areas and then either put in a pleural catheter or a chest tube, most of the time these days it's a pleural catheter, we can see pleuridesis a lot faster than we had previously for just putting a pleural catheter, for example, in for a malignant infusion. That's a really great point, Jamie. Thank you so much for sharing that and just your approach to when to perform a pleuroscopy. So we're going to just bring us back to our patient again. I know Dave gave a a little bit of an HPI earlier. He underwent a right thoracentesis and the effusion was serosanguinous appearance with more of a red color than the typical straw color that we may often see. As Dave mentioned earlier, looking at the cell count, it was lymphocytic predominant and was exudated based on meeting three out of three lights criteria with a pleural fluid LDH of 450. As we thought earlier, there was concern that this patient may um, have a malignant effusion just based on the presence of a mass, as well as his significant smoking history. So a rush was put on the cytology, and this came back positive for malignant cells consistent with an adenocarcinoma. So after this initial thoracentesis, the patient felt better, but he still remained on one to two liters of oxygen, and everyone wants to look at the post-thora x-ray. One, no pneumothorax was confirmed. He did have some re-expansion of the lung, but there still appeared to be a, a moderate effusion. And David, I'm wondering if you could tell us your approach to management of a pa- patient such as this with a new malignant pleural effusion on their first presentation. Yeah, sure. So... I think that the crucial thing, which has been um, interesting to embrace more the longer I've been working, is <clears throat> the fact that, uh, first of all, like no, there's no one size fits all for the patient. And, and actually, the options are not that similar. You really need to get shared decision making going on these folks. And the second is the fact that you need to decide up front and this isn't always that easy, is the effusion recurring or not? 
And if so, how quickly? So really the thing that I've learned, which bears out in more recent um, epidemiology studies is, you know, nowadays it's not that common for a malignant pleural effusion to recur in the first few months. It's this old dogma, so to speak, that basically 95% of malignant pleural effusion will recur within four weeks. I've never really been able to figure out what the source is on that statement, but I've been told that many times. And in really what we've noticed clinically and you see every day, but also what bears out in, in um, kind of carefully collected prospective data that is collected for kind of intervention studies in malignant pleural effusion is that only about 60 to 65% of people with a malignant effusion actually recur in the first six months to a year. As recently as a couple of years ago, there was a great prospective cohort study in chest. Schwalk is the first author. It was a cohort study looking at recurrence of malignant effusion, depending on your mutational status. And that's off topic, but the point is that's carefully prospectively collected data. And again, about only about 40% of people in each um, group only had one plural intervention. So you need to decide are they recurring or not. Now, that seems so simple. The tension often here is the patient's hospitalized. They feel much better after the thoracentesis and they want to go home. You also don't totally know why they have an effusion yet sometimes. Maybe you don't know if it's recurring or not. And that decision actually becomes nuanced. And really the key is just what is your pleural effusion follow-up clinic option? If you're working somewhere where there is none, that might be someone you keep in house and you try to get a better plan in place. If you have a thoracentesis clinic through IR or interventional pulmonology and you can get them a visit in one week and they're desperate to leave, that might be okay too. And you repeat the ultrasound in a week and figure out, are they actually recurring? I think relevant to this vignette, it sounds like this is the type of patient where they have residual fluid and there's still plenty of pleural effusion there, or they're recurring quite rapidly. And sometimes even in the index diagnosis, that's the case. If that's the case, we always talk about the second pleural intervention being more definitive than just serial, serial thoracentesis. I think it's shocking sometimes how many patients who hear about all the options elect for serial thoracentesis and are quite enthusiastic about that option. And so again, you need to talk to your patient and decide if that's an option where you work in terms of logistically. Um, but we, we know that's not a great idea, right? It, it puts people in a vulnerable position um, where they are playing this dangerous game, where they're trying to get appointments set up before they get symptomatic, but it's hard to predict. And each time they have a plural intervention, there's small risks of a complication. So we try to focus on tunnel pleural catheters, uh, chest tube pleuridesis as the two main options. There's basically excellent randomized clinical trial data comparing those interventions, and they're pretty similar. 
Great. Thank you so much, Dave. And um, I think you brought up some really great points. And I think that the main thing is, right, recurrence, is it going to happen? And how often do we monitor? Right. And you said if patients are admitted, it's easy to say, yeah, we're going to go look with the ultrasound daily and see if it reoccurs and see if we need to drain it. But that's not often the case. And I know you said some of the ways that you would try to approach it, Dave, but Jamie, just wondering, there may be some institutional variants in Penn and, and New York are a little further away from each other, not too far though. But just wondering, Jamie, do you have any different practice for monitoring patients such as this after they present with a new uh, malignant pleural effusion? Probably not too different, but as every hospital is eager to discharge everyone as soon as possible, (laughs) preferably in the morning, we do tend to try to make sure that the patients have very good follow-up as outpatients. And we will see them back in the office usually within two to three weeks of discharge if they have a thoracentesis in the hospital. But don't forget, many of these procedures are being done outside the hospital, and we would similarly make a plan to see them back and re-ultrasound in a few weeks. Also, a little bit put the onus on them to make sure that they call if they have symptoms that are recurring sooner than that. And there are certainly, as Dave mentioned, there are going to be patients who have symptoms that recur within two to three days, if not shorter. So we definitely ask those patients to let us know as soon as possible so that they can either come back in for a repeat procedure or so that we can talk to them about the other options that they have. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful framework for everyone that we're deciding about the reaccumulation and the rate. And I love that we're all pointing out ultrasound, like the patient does not need to go to x-ray and then come up. It's an option if that's the best for your individual institution, but hopefully at clinic, they can get a quick exam and a quick ultrasound and see where they're at. So for this patient, he was ultimately discharged to have follow-up. After further testing, he was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer, came back as adenocarcinoma. It was negative for EGFR, ALK, or other clear driving mutations, and had pdl one expression of less than 50%. And for all you listening, we will have a lung cancer episode and series coming up so that we will dive into each of these a little further. He had stage 4A disease based on his malignant pleural fusion. And as Van said, we know that this is a sign of advanced disease. He had no other distant metastatic sites, and he was started on chemotherapy with pemetrexid and pembrolizumab, uh, immunotherapy, the second part of that. Despite starting on treatment and tolerating it, he had recurrent of his malignant pleural fusion first after two and a half weeks, and then he had a repeat thoracentesis, and then it reaccumulated again after one and a half weeks. So now we know, to Dave's question, that this is a reoccurrent and it's getting a little, even a little faster, unfortunately, despite treatment. So Van, can you walk us through, do you have a framework for how you approach a patient like this who we have confirmed recurrent malignant pleural fusion? Yeah, so in general, there are three main things that I consider in my initial approach for patients with this recurrent malignant pleural fusion. And number one is, did the patient feel better with the pleural drainage? So I'm assuming that this patient did because he's had three of them. But for some patients, if it's like their first thoracentesis and they don't feel better, that you would need to look into other causes of their dyspnea. Do they have a pulmonary embolism from their hypercognitive state? Or if the patient's not sure whether or not they felt better with a pearl drainage, it may be reasonable to repeat a second thoracentesis and have the patient closely monitor their symptoms and reassess. And ultimately, this is because whatever intervention you offer for the long-term management of the effusion you first want to make sure that it actually helps them. The second question is, does the lung re-expand? So this can be determined by 
a chest x-ray after the procedure or the presence of lung sliding afterwards, or some centers may use chromanometry. But determining whether or not the lung fully expands is important because that would also determine what would be appropriate management options for that patient. So in a patient that does not have full lung expansion, they would not be the best candidate for pleurodesis. The third main factor I would consider is what is their patient's life expectancy and their personal preferences. Again, with a malignant pleurofusion, their life expectancy is not great. How can we optimize their quality of life and their ability to stay home and out of the hospital? So one thing to help assess their life expectancy is something called the LENT score, L-E-N-T. So the L stands for the LDH level of the profluorin, E stands for the ECOG status, N stands for the serum neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, and T stands for the tumor type. So based on the LENT score, they could be at a low, moderate, or high risk of mortality within a certain time frame. So that would be important because you think about what can I offer uh, this patient to again keep them out of the hospital and enjoy being at home. And that with personal preferences, that's also important to take into account. For example, I've had a patient who's a very avid swimmer. Their quality of life is being able to swim every day. And she opted not to get a ton of pearl catheter. And we did intermittent thoras um, for her. So I think it's very important to keep in mind with everything else that the options you provide are patient-centric. Yeah, man, that's so important to remember and definitely just like your three question approach to how to manage it. And I know we said earlier, we're going to talk a little bit more about how we actually do management, manage malignant pleural effusions if further interventions are needed. And, and two that we've alluded to a little bit today are pleurodesis. And then Ben, you just mentioned indwelling or tunnel pleural catheter. And Jamie, I'm wondering for if you can just review in general for those that may not be familiar, just the basics of what a indwelling pleural catheter is, as well as pleurodesis. Of course. So an indwelling pleural catheter is a very easy procedure to do. It is very close to doing a thoracentesis, except it is a little bit of a larger catheter that sits in the pleural space and is tunneled under the skin so that it can't easily fall out or be pulled out. And it can be very convenient for patients who don't want to continuously come in either to the office or the hospital. Most of the time, a visiting nurse will come and drain the patient at least two to three times weekly. But we often will teach family as well how to drain the catheter they wish, because it's certainly something that a layman could learn. We just stress that the patient should really not do it themselves to avoid infection. But that's a very viable option for a lot of people, and studies have shown that pleurodesis often occurs just from the inflammatory response of the pleura to the actual catheter itself. Pleurodesis is a bit different, and to be honest, we have moved away from doing pleurodesis during pleuroscopy, mainly because we send everyone home the same day. But the traditional option is to do a pleurodesis after doing pleural biopsies and then put in a chest tube and usually keep the patient for a short time as an inpatient. But you can also do a pleurodesis with an indwelling pleural catheter. 
often we do that. You can not only do that at the same time that you're doing the pleuridesis, excuse me, the pleuroscopy, but you can also bring the patient back and do the pleuridesis if they haven't pleuridesed on their own after the pleuroscopy. So we tend to see them back at about two weeks to see post pleuroscopy if they have drained what their trajectory or cadence of drainage is. And if they've dried up, we can remove the pleural catheter and assume that they've pleuridesed mechanically. And if not, we will schedule them to come back and do a pleuridesis in our procedure room and then also send the patient home the same day. Thanks, Jamie. And yeah, so it sounds like the pleurodesis, the mechanical portion is done, accomplished just by the two being there. One thing that I know also comes up is like the different agents that are used. So when you were saying that they come back to do a pleurodesis, is there any evidence? What, can you tell us what type of agents are used? And is there any evidence that one is better than the other? Or is it more at the provider's uh, discretion? Most physicians probably have their favorite or what they've used traditionally or what they were trained with. Most of the studies that were done on patients with lung cancer and breast cancer specifically looked at talc pleuridesis, which is very common and thought to be a little less painful than, for example, doing doxycycline, which often is highly painful and to the point where often when I was in training, we would call our pain colleagues and ask for an epidural or a nerve block just for the patient to tolerate it. So talc is definitely something you can use, but there's a variety of other things as well. So there are different formulas for an iodine pleuridesis. The patient's own blood is certainly a possibility. And I think it's probably favored a little bit less and doesn't have as much of an efficacy. But if you think that there's a time in the future that a surgeon may have to get into the pleural space, they would appreciate something autologous like blood that isn't going to stick as much. So there have been times that we've used that if we think that there's some reason in the future for surgery. I think the other thing just to mention is that traditionally we've always rotated the patient when we've done a pleuridesis and asked them every 15 minutes to turn over because if you think of the pleural space, it's really a the whole body is a 3D structure, so you don't want it all sitting dependently, but studies have shown that actually doesn't really help, but I can tell you that every once in a while I still do it and I ask people to change their position. For drainage, again, for um, a pleural catheter, the more often you drain, often you'll see the pleuridesis sooner if you're not using an actual chemical agent. That's great. So we have an awesome framework now, right? We have our three questions we can ask ourselves about a recurrent uh, malignant pleural fusion. Then we know we can go to an indwelling pleural catheter versus a mechanical pleurodesis or a chemical pleurodesis or even a surgical if there's an option for that. Dave, you were mentioning that there's data to help guide our decisions. And we know taking into account that there's a lot of patient preference into this. I'm just curious if you can review for us briefly what the data is and, and the points that come up when you're discussing these different options based on those trials about indwelling pleurocatheter versus pleurodesis. Yeah, I think that the stark differences between the options really help people decide what they want to do. They're really not that similar. I think that pleuroscopy with pleurodesis has been compared to chest tube pleuridesis in the randomized clinical trial setting and shown to be about equivalent and in the most successful, carefully collected data possible, pleuridesis as a whole, no matter how it's done, might be successful in the short term about 70% of the time. So 
I think what's important to know is for a lot of patients who are being offered just chest tube pleuridesis, which requires an inpatient stay, that's tough sometimes because you're talking about some pain, some inpatient admission, and then about one in three times, it doesn't even really work. So that's why it's really nice to consider something like Jamie just mentioned, a hybrid approach almost, where they still get to go home, but you might be able to try pleuridesis in the short term all at once. It's a really nice way to think about it. The the data for tunnel pleural catheters, at least the most recent carefully collected clinical trial evidence, it it's really not that likely in the short term that you're going to have, quote unquote, autopleuridesis. So I think patients need to understand they're not going to need to be admitted. It's incredibly safe. People can go home right away. Typically, the risks are minimal. And really, the most recent study I always look at, which is the ASAP trial, which is a blue journal paper from 2017. In that paper, in the standard drainage arm, which is every other day, three days weekly, only 24% of people in that arm were autopleuridesed after 12 weeks. Very likely that the downside there is you're going to be draining this thing at home for months. In the other arm of that study where you were to drain daily, the autopleuridesis rate was 47%. So it was still under 50% at 12 weeks. And it's difficult, honestly, to ensure insurance coverage and supply, ensure the supplies are available to do daily drainage, to be honest. So the tunnel pleural catheter decision is a little bit nuanced because you may be in it for the long haul. So I think it just really, these differences are quite stark. And I think that most people probably, if given these three options, would probably prefer a hybrid approach like Jamie mentioned. But Again, you got to talk to your patient. And I think in North America, where being admitted for something is electively is very much looked at with a critical eye and and patients don't want to be admitted. Let's be honest. The admitting someone for chest tube pleuridesis is really quite rare, at least in our practice here. I'm interested to hear what Jamie and Van think about that. But I, I find that as a very uncommon choice. Yeah, yeah certainly. I agree with you. I I think that we have figured out ways, but it is labor intensive to get around some of the issues with the visiting nurses, which there has been a shortage of visiting nurses in various parts of America since the pandemic, which has been difficult for patients and for families and for us. And then we've worked out some ways to get patient supplies if they come to our office to pick them up, especially as we get donations from patients whose catheters have luckily been removed or unfortunately some patients who pass away, their families tend to donate their leftover supplies. So we often have enough if the patient can compromise with some of those things. And then last case, last resort, I would say, would be for the patient to come into our cancer center for drainage when needed, but that obviously is not going to be a daily occurrence. Thanks, Jamie. Van, did you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I think there are challenges for maintaining the underlying pleural catheter. It's important to um, address those challenges up front before placing the catheter. 
sometimes once a catheter is placed in, if there's no resources to manage it at home, then it sort of defeats the purpose. Thanks, Van. And I think just to extend on your last point too, so two potential management issues, pleuridesis, indwelling pleural catheter. We just talked about some of the challenges or barriers with having indwelling pleural catheter. But Van, just maybe as our last question together as a group, we've talked about pain being the main complication for pleurodesis, but Van, what are some complications of indwelling pleural catheter that you think patients and families should be aware about? Yeah, so I think probably the two most common complications that I would want my patients to know about would be one, infection. Is there any redness developing around the catheter site? It's important to keep an eye on that. It's important to use sterile technique when draining the indwelling pearl catheter. And oftentimes a lot of patients and their family member who's doing the drainage come back for a follow-up and they can show us how they're doing it. We can provide feedback. Is there any change in the color of the fluid? because that could potentially indicate an infection. So the infection could present as just a localized cellulitis, or it can be an infection of the tunnel tract. So I've actually had some patients who have been expressing pus from their tract, or the fluid itself can become infected like an empyema. Hmm. Oftentimes for any IPC-related infection, we can often treat through them with antibiotics and sometimes intrapleural fibrinolytics. It's important to catch them early. The second potential complication would be catheter blockage or malfunction. So we ask our patients to call us if their output drops less than 50 cc's three times in a row. It could mean that their catheter is malfunctioning and there is diffusion there and their catheter just needs to get flushed, or they develop loculations, and we need to give interpleural fibrinolytics um, to help break that up. Uh, so those are the two main things that I inform patients and my family members about. Thanks so much, Fan. And just to end with our patient and kind of wrap up his course, so we asked the three questions, Van, that you thought to ask about, and it made sense to kind of offer further management and therapy for him. And was it repeated thoracentesis? Was it pleurodesis or indwelling pleural catheter? And the patient actually wanted to have an indwelling pleural catheter, and it worked well for him at night. He initially was draining it nightly before he went to bed, and then it went to every other night. And then after about seven weeks of using it and getting uh, concomitant therapy, the output eventually slowed and ultimately he was able to have the tube removed. That's great. So this was a fantastic talk. I think we have a great understanding of how to approach malignant pleural fusion and rounding out some of our, our pleural discussions. Although David did mention chylothorax, and I think we probably have to do a full episode on that because it's so interesting. <laughs> so as always, we like to wrap up with a learning or takeaway point uh, from everyone. Mine is really about pleuroscopy. I feel like this just doesn't come up that much for the general pulmonologist. And it sounds like from your guys' discussion, there are a lot of indications. If your cytology is not positive, you have a suspicion after one or two Thoras that are not working out, at least offer it and discuss it. So I, I'm taking that away. Christina, takeaway point or a learning point from today? Yeah, I think definitely, as we said, make sure you send cytology, uh, make sure it gets sent at least 60 cc's. And then um, I think one of Van's early points, I, I just, I didn't remember the exact statistic, but at least that over 50% of malignant pleurofusions are going to be either due to breast and or lung cancer. I love it. I love it. Dave, any takeaway point from today? for our listeners? I think something that I 
embarrassingly almost overlooked. I, I want to reiterate something that was subtle that Van said, which is when you're wrapping your head around what you're going to do later, remember, did this make them feel better, the first orosynthesis, and do they have a trapped lung? So I think we almost glossed over that in a way, but those are two really big points after Thora number one to strategize. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we probably also have to have another episode about trapped versus entrapped lung and, and what happens if you can't handle that. But that's a great point for everyone to remember. We have to see that the patient feels better and that the lung is re-expanding and re-expanding fully. Van, uh, we already have a couple great learning points for you. And one that you're going to take away or you want our listeners to know? Yeah, I think my takeaway point would be take into account the patient preferences and their social situation. Oftentimes what may be what you think is the best for the patient may not be what they can accommodate or what is necessarily best for that individual patient. Totally. Yeah. Jamie practices in New York, so she, this probably will resonate. But when I was in fellowship, we had a patient who like could not get these and could not get down there. And I would just have to walk eight blocks every two days to bring them their bottles. <laughs> Only option. <laughs> Only in New York. Uh, Only in New York. Yeah. Jamie, takeaway point for everyone? I'll just say two things. The first thing, just to point out, you can still put in an indwelling pleural catheter if the lung does not re-expand. Many times patients still get benefit because the diaphragm is offloaded. The contralateral or ipsilateral lung also can slightly be able to move in the thorax a bit better. So it it is something that still can be helpful. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'll say is if you have pulmonologists that do pleural biopsies and pleural catheters and also pleuroscopies at your hospital, please think of them and ask them for their opinion. Not every patient needs as big of an intervention like a surgery or a two-port. That's, for example, we can do many things really minimally invasively with monitored anesthesia care and very good pain control, lots of local, and patients really benefit from that without necessarily having a quote-unquote major surgery. So really think about that and investigate it just to keep it in the front of your mind. I love it. You heard it here. Jamie said, don't, don't call thoracics, call IP. No. I'm just <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> just, thank you all so much for coming on this wonderful episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we will see you next time uh, in two weeks.